place to which we journey tonight is extremely dangerous. You must obey every command I give you without question. Yes, sir. But it cannot stay in the Shire. No. No, it can't. What's that do? It doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time. What? I'm explaining to you because you look nervous. So I want you to stay right here and wait for me. He left He left it. But that's not what I'm gonna do. We should call him Zatara. Sounds fearsome. It means driftwood. See all those words printed in a line, one after the other? Put them all together, and you have a story. I have always been a huge fan of Pixar films. I think that they have such a level of creativity and an ability to visually tell stories at such a high level that, that it is pure entertainment and joy and, and actually very cathartic. I can think of many of their films from Coco to Inside Out to Monsters, Inc. to Toy Story where, where I seriously had a genuine, powerful experience watching these kids' movies that, that are made for kids, but they're actually made for all ages, actually. They include so many elements throughout all of their films that are just, it, they're very engaging and very interesting. And as a writer, I was always very much inspired by what they do at Pixar. And I had an amazing opportunity while studying at Chapman. Mark Andrews came and gave a forum. And he is the director of Brave. He was one of the supervisors on The Incredibles. He's worked very closely with Brad Bird through the years. Um, he worked on Iron Giant with Brad Bird. And he's, he's a really great visual storyteller. And, oh, another one of his, his films is The One Man Band, uh, that Pixar short that appeared before Cars. Um, and he directed that, co-directed it. And anyway, he gave this, this presentation that was really interesting, talking about storytelling and filmmaking. And as a screenwriter at the time, I, I was very interested in what he had to say. And I learned something very powerful. And that is the way that an idea comes about, the way that a story gets built at Pixar was just very intriguing to me because what they actually do, because digital animation, you know, going into the computer and actually developing the animation that, that is the visual of the story, it is such a labor intense process that animators uh, go to great lengths to tell the story in advance. Not, not through written word, but through pictures. Uh, they do animatics and storyboards, and they will actually tell much of the work. I mean, it takes about three years, three or four years to create a Pixar film, and much of the work that goes into that has to do with doing storyboards to tell the entire story by hand at first. So the, they'll, they'll draw pictures and they'll create an entire scene and then an editor will take those images and develop them into what's called an animatic, which is sort of like, like a storyboard of images that has been edited together with some temporary sound and even some temp dialogue. So that they can, and, and all of this is so that they can experience the story in shorthand before they go through all that effort to animate it, all that expensive effort to animate the film. And this gives them an incredible edge. I, I saw this meme once that was talking about uh, the film Up, which is amazing. I mean, well, there were people in the theater when I watched it, literally in tears within the first 10 minutes of the film Up. 
And I saw this meme where it was like, Pixar did in 10 minutes what Stephanie Meyer took four books to do. And they were being, you know, it's always, it's kind of a cheap shot. It's kind of an, an easy thing to take shots at the Twilight books. And I'm not, I'm not here to discuss that. But as I've thought about that meme, I was like, that is incredibly unfair to compare a studio. Like when you see the credits at the end of a Pixar film, you literally see hundreds and hundreds of names. And to compare what hundreds and hundreds, of, hundreds and hundreds of people working together can create to what one single author did in the Twilight books. It's a little bit of an unfair comparison, but it, it did make me think, man, there, there is such an interesting component to how Pixar goes about telling a story. And, and as I mentioned, and, and I promise guys, this, this is gonna come back to outlining and writing your story. It, it really does. But what they do at Pixar is they develop the whole film and storyboard first. And then they will sit down and scene by scene, they will watch the film, right? It's a very affordable way to be able to tell the entire story in advance and to know what's working and what's not working. Because, and Mark Andrews showed us some of his animatics and he showed us some of the things that he did for Iron Giant and, and a few other things. And it was really cool to be able to like experience the story before it became the final version. And what that enables you to do is to solve story problems before you've done the heavy lift. And, and this was really powerful to me to the point that I, I was actually interested. I was hoping that there's some way I could find a way to become a writer for Pixar one day. I don't know if, I don't know if that'll ever happen. Uh, I, I still would love that idea. But what I did is I went and I made my own, my own animatics just to experience it, just to practice it and see what that was like to build a story uh, in, in sort of this image basic format before sitting down and, and doing the heavy lift. And you can actually check out some of my dumb uh, little storyboards that I put together and edited. They're on uh, a website, cktportfolio.blogspot.com. Um, it's set up on, on one of my blogs. There's a number of things there, but if you go to storyboard one and two at that website, you can actually see some of the animatics that I put together because I wanted to experience storytelling in this way. But I do think that this gives Pixar a crazy advantage that you don't get, filmmakers don't get, and writers of books and novels, you can have this advantage if you outline properly, which is what we're going to be discussing today, because it is a big advantage to solve story problems at a higher level, at the, you know, we're gonna start at the 10,000 foot level looking down and then the 1,000 foot level and then the 100 foot level. And you solve the story problems before you're on the page because the most time consuming, the most, uh, the most effort is when you're on the page actually writing. And that is not where you wanna be solving big story problems. You wanna be focusing on description and pacing at that point. You don't wanna to have to write and write and write scenes over and over and over again because you didn't really know the purpose of the scene when you in, went into it. So that's why we're talking about outlining today. It, at Pixar Studios, they do their outlines by storyboards. As a writer of books, I have done plenty of outlining and I'm going to share with you the methods that I use to be able to discuss and look and kind of fiddle with the story at that, at that higher level before you're breaking into pages. But at the end of the day, what an outline really is, is it's a blueprint. You are creating the story, but on a concept level long before you're implementing it for real, right? It's, it's a blueprint for a building. 
You, you want to make sure you know how everything's going to go before you do the hard work of breaking ground, pouring a foundation, and building the house. And, and that's what being on the page writing is like. You're doing the hard work. So you want to have a general idea of, of what that's going to be before you break into pages. Now, I have to say, there are authors and writers that work in all sorts of different ways. I know there are some authors who are just really, really good and they don't outline at all. And they just sit down on the page and it just flows and, and they just get in their character's head. I feel like a lot of those are more um, character-driven narratives, not necessarily action or complex narratives. For me, I, ju I just I can't do it without an outline of some sort. I have to have a way to structure my thoughts and put them together before I'm on the page or I get lost. So what, we're gonna, what I'm going to start with are what I call the three levels of outlining. And they're the three methods that I use. It's my way of bringing some organization to the madness of all these ideas that go on in our head. So these three levels of outlining are just putting your ideas down on paper in bullet form, just writing ideas for scenes, characters, motives, anything. And it's kind of this, this chaotic thing, but you've got to put it on paper because I find that a lot of times our mind will skip steps because we're thinking of a whole concept and not breaking it down. But the moment you have to articulate it with words, your ideas start to shape up a lot better and you can get a feel for what's working and what's not working. The second level of outlining is note cards. It's a great way to structure scene by scene. And the reason that note cards are so great, and I learned this from screenwriting and it, and it still applies to writing a book. I've done it many times where I'm like, okay, I'm at a point where to solve this problem, I need to note card because what you can do with note cards is reverse order of things, right? You have all these ideas for scenes and you can be like, what if this happens here instead of after? What's the relationship between these two scenes? And you can play with these note cards. And then the third level is a full treatment. And we'll dive deep into that here at the end of this, this episode and talk about what a full treatment looks like and how it can benefit you. And I know most people are gonna be like, ah, full treatment's a lot of work. It actually ends up saving you a lot of work in the end. So let's talk about ideas and bullets. This is kind of like your commonplace notebook, only it's more structured. You should have a place where when you're considering a story idea, you should start fleshing it out and you should write every idea down. You should put it down somewhere. For me, this crazy thing happens when I write something down in a notebook. The moment I start putting the words down, I can tell if an idea resonates with me or not. Because believe me, a lot of crazy, stupid, ideas fly into this head of mine. And and if you're like me and your imagination is always running wild and, and you're kind of never really here, you're always in your head Think you can ask my wife. I'm, she's always like, you're not here right now. Where are you? And it's like a lot of times I'm thinking about stories. And so I have a lot of crazy ideas flowing into my, into my mind. And once you get them down on page, it makes it a lot easier to judge them. There's times that I've like written an idea down that I was so excited about. And by the time I was done writing it down, I was like, Nope, it's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. As soon as I put it on paper, it became tactile and it became something that I'd have an easier time judging. And you want to be able to do that. You want to judge, one, if it's going to work, and two, if it's going to resonate with you. Because for me, I, I cannot go through all the effort of writing for a story that I don't care about. It has to be something I'm passionate about. And often, when I'm on the page and I'm writing it down, I get a sense for what that is. So whatever format that takes, I recommend just doing bullet points for characters, scenes, ideas, and just kind of blah, put it out all on paper. 
Uh, I had an awesome experience uh, a couple of years ago. I went to a book signing of Orson Scott Card for his novel, Lost and Found, and I was able to, to meet Orson Scott Card, and that was really, really cool. But as we sat there in line waiting uh, to get our book signed, so there was this individual there ahead of us who was getting his book signed, and he mentioned Orson Scott Card that he was an aspiring writer, and Orson said a couple things really interesting. He, he looked at the kid and said, do you write? And, and this kid, he's about my age, and he's like, yes, yes, I write. And he's like, then drop the word aspiring. You're a writer. Embrace it. And that hit me home because, and, and I've talked about, I talked about this in the last segment about deciding that you are a writer. That came from Morrison Scott Card for me. And I was like, that is, that's potent. I like that. And then the kid went on, or Orson went on to ask uh, this guy, uh, have you finished anything? And he said, no. And Orson Scott Card wasn't surprised because... I think that's a struggle for most writers is actually being able to finish something. And I have to say, I'm, uh, I'm really, I'm proud of myself because that is something that I've been able to overcome. And I feel like a lot of these things that I'm sharing with outlining is what helps me to be able to finish a project and not get lost along the way. Because the moment that your story isn't working, it becomes hard to, to be passionate about it because you're like, ah, it's not working and you want to stop and fix it right then. And having an outline, a structure can help you move through it. It can help you say, okay, this scene isn't working the way I want it to right now, but I know there are subsequent scenes that are good that I've outlined, so I'm going to move through them. Orson asks his kid, have you finished anything? And he's like, I haven't yet. And he's like, you've got to finish it. And he gave this tip that, that I think is where your bullets and your ideas should start. He says, all a story is, is in the beginning, you make a promise, and then you write until you fulfill that promise. And like... On a, on a 10,000 foot level, like that is your outline. That is the structure of a story. And I love that. Like the beginning is a promise. It ends once you fulfill on that promise. And that's like as basic as it can get with structure. Now we're going to dive a lot more into the nitty gritty of structure here in a second. But as you're putting down ideas on paper, I think you should be thinking about what is the promise? What is the promise you're making the reader at the beginning? And then how do you fulfill on it by the end? Because if you can fulfill on that promise, then your story is going to be ultimately satisfying for an audience to experience. So I, I loved what Orson Scott Card said about that. And I have thought about it often is what is the promise and how do you fulfill on it? The next level of outlining is note carding. This, I think, comes a lot from the world of screenwriting. And I don't know how many authors of books actually utilize this tool, which is unfortunate because it's super powerful. I have to say, one, I feel like I have developed a number of really useful skills when it comes to writing. And, and don't get me wrong, there's lots of areas where I struggle. But because I studied film and screenwriting for so long before turning to novels, it taught me to put story first and to be focused on story, 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 because it's king. And... Nobody wants to read a book that has no story, but just a lot of pretty words, right? Like, yeah, there's poetry and, and poetry can be really, really good. Uh, but even my favorite poems have a story to them. <laughs> but we are willing to trudge through something that's maybe medium, maybe a little subpar written if the story is really, really good. 
right? Like, like story trumps everything. If it's, if it's engaging, we want to know what happens and we, we want to go on this journey all the way to the end. And note carding is a powerful way that you can get your story structure laid out correctly. It's a great way to take all these, all these ideas, even things that I, that you wrote down in bullet form and it puts structure to it and you start to say, okay, what's the order? What's the point? So what I recommend doing is taking all the scenes and all the ideas you've written down in a notebook in stage one of outlining and putting them onto note cards. What you're gonna do is you're gonna take a note card for each scene that happens in your story. At the top of the note card, you're gonna write a name for the scene. It doesn't have to be pretty, it doesn't have to be perfect, it just has to be whatever comes to mind when you think of that scene, give it a name. Once you've got a name for the scene, then you're gonna write whose POV, whose point of view is this from? What character are we experiencing this scene from? A lot of stories have, especially if you're in the fantasy genre, have multiple perspectives happening at once, uh, but not even just the, the fantasy genre. Um, I know spy thrillers, there's a lot going on in these like global, I'm reading Some of All Fears right now by Tom Clancy, and man, we jump from perspective to perspective to perspective, and it's important to know as you're structuring these scenes, because that will tell you what information is coming at what point. So you put the name of the scene, who's POV, and then you put what do they want in this scene. And this is critical because you, if you have a scene where the main character in that scene, you don't know what they want, your scene is gonna meander. If you know what they want, then you know the stakes and it's easy to build tension in that scene, which you want in every single scene. And then the last thing, you, uh, there's three more things you're gonna put on, but the last main thing is you're gonna put the crux of the scene. What is the point of the scene? Okay, and then on the bottom you might put a few, two more little notes. So there's four main things and then two smaller things at the bottom. Uh, of this note card that you're gonna put. And uh, number five is the purpose of the scene. And this is different than the crux of the scene. I mean the purpose of the scene within the story. So uh, we're gonna talk about the three act structure here in a second. And this may be your inciting incident, or this scene may be um, like often I'll have a scene where I'm like, well, the, really the purpose of this scene is to convey, there's some important information that gets conveyed in this scene. And that, that may be the purpose of the scene is to be like, convey this info. And then the last thing you're going to put on the note card is any plants that you have that you need to be remembered. Now a plant is, if you haven't heard this term, plant and payoff. Uh, so you plant something earlier in the story that you know is going to pay off later. For example, uh, a character grabs uh, a flower pot, right? And puts it in the back of their car. And then several chapters later, or maybe many, many, many chapters later, when they realize they're in a situation and they're like, oh my gosh, but I have that flower pot in the back of my car. That's a plant and payoff. Got it? So you wanna put on your note card any little plants that you need to have to make sure to do in this scene so that it makes sense come the end of the story. So I'm gonna review these again. Each note card has the scene name, the POV, what does the character want, and what is the crux of the scene, and then the final two little bits of information that not every note card will have, but most of them should, is the purpose of the scene within the story, and any plants that you have that need to be remembered to go in that scene. And you're gonna put all of your scenes on these note cards and lay them out, and you're gonna have a story sitting before you. Remember what I said about animatics, how you'd have like a storyboard that you could literally look at and go through your entire story in shorthand? Boom, if you do this with all your note cards, 
You have your entire story laid out in front of you, put it on a bulletin board, and you can look at it, you can walk through it bit by bit by bit, and guess what it's gonna do? It's gonna show you holes. You're gonna realize that you thought a certain part of the book or the story would take up X amount of time, and then you're gonna be like, huh, that's only two note cards long, and yet I thought this was gonna be like the main part of the whole story. Or you're gonna find you have like 10 note cards that really do nothing at all. And you're like, wow, I am drawing this out and these could be consolidated into two or three note cards. I promise you, as you get it laid out on note cards, you'll start to understand the weight of your story. You'll, you'll be able to do things like understand pacing, understand uh, POV and which characters are getting, if you have the characters POV on each card, and I would even maybe highlight uh, each of those characters. And then when you visually look at your storyboard on note cards, you can see real quickly which characters are getting the most attention and which ones aren't. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. It depends on your story. Now, I wanted to give you a bit of information for some note cards that I believe every story should have. And these are the, the different points along the three-act structure that, again, when you are at film school, when you're studying to be a screenwriter, uh, the three-act structure is really, really, really important because you only have two hours to tell a movie, right? Give or take. And so you got to be really quick on getting to these points. However, I think that most books still end up having somewhat of a three-act structure, regardless of their length. They just they're just able to take their time a little bit more, which is which is awesome, and I and I love that that factor in in novels and books. Um, but I still think it's really really beneficial to understand three-act structure and how it applies uh, because this this will help move your story along really, really well. And you should have a note card for each one of these points that we're going to discuss. Now, as you discuss the three-act structure, it's, it's critical uh, that you have examples of how this works. And today we're going to be talking about Toy Story as it pertains to the three-act structure. I like to use Toy Story because one, most everybody has seen it. Two, they're really, really good at it. As I mentioned with Pixar, they, they, they follow that three-act structure really, really well, but they do it subtly and they do it in interesting ways so that it doesn't feel overly structured. Um, so let's dive in and take a look at this. So the three-act structure, uh, again, we start at 10,000 feet and then we get closer and closer and move our way down to understand more and more the details that go on in your story. So on a high level, you have act one, which is the exposition or the setup. You have act two, which is like uh, people call it rising action or um, the confrontation. And then you have act three, which is the resolution, which really it's the beginning, the middle and the end. And that's why most stories end up having some form of a three act structure, right? Some have some additional acts or maybe their act two is just really, really big. Um, and that's totally fine. But most stories still fall into this pattern because it seems to work really, really well to tell a story. Okay, so let's start and let's dive in and let's look at act one. You have the beginning. And I actually think the first thing you should be thinking about with the story is what's called a hook. If uh, you want people to enjoy this story, leading with the hook is what really gets someone interested in going forward. There are so many stories in the world today that it's hard for people to determine which ones they're gonna stick with and which ones they're not gonna, gonna be part of. And a lot of that comes, I mean, there's a lot of people that'll start a book and never finish it, right? And the hooks helps them understand what's this all about, but also gets them intrigued out of the gate on what that's going to be, right? So the, 
The hook for Toy Story is that these toys are alive. Now, marketing for a film also has a huge advantage because it can get people interested in what's going to happen in the story a lot sooner, like right before they've even sat down to watch the movie. Most people already had the hook of Toy Story. They saw that it was about toys that when uh, people aren't in the room, they come to life. And that's a hook. It's like, oh, I wonder, wonder what this life is like for these toys, right? So the hook is that they are toys. Okay, then you have the inciting incident. And the inciting incident is this thing that happens that throws the world out of balance. And more particularly, it throws it out of balance for the main character. The inciting incident in Toy Story is Buzz showing up, right? We have this fun scene with the birthday party and it's funny and there are jokes and then there's intensity and the toys are really worried. And that's kind of part of the hook that we're like, oh wow, inside this world, toys are concerned about getting replaced, right? They're like, ooh, new toys coming. And it's like, oh, I never thought about that. Every time I had a birthday and got new toys, it's right. Some of my old toys I didn't play with as much. And that's a big deal in the world of toys. So that inciting incident is when Buzz shows up and Woody is knocked off the bed and Buzz has arrived and he turns everything upside down, okay? From there, inside of act one, we have what I call um, the deliberation. And that is where the main character is trying to decide how they're going to deal with this situation. They're trying to cope with it at first. They're trying to tell themselves that they can live with things being out of balance. Maybe sometimes this, this deliberation doesn't last very long in some stories because a character makes their mind up really quick, but other times it can be really interesting to watch them as they try and pretend that everything's still okay. This is the case in Toy Story, right? Woody tries to pretend that he's still Andy's favorite. He even says it. He's like, I'm still Andy's favorite. Everything's going to go back to normal. But we know it won't, and it doesn't, right? Woody is in denial. He's deliberating on this thing, okay? So then we have the first plot point... And I call it breaking into act two. It's the scene where the story really gets underway. And you know it's a plot point because, real quick, I, I want to make something abundantly clear. Plot is not stuff happening. Plot is not conflict. Plot is... Uh, there's any number of things in a story that people mistake for plot. But what plot really is, an interesting plot, is characters making decisions. So when there's a lot of things happening to someone, that's not plot. It's when the character makes a decision to do something about it. That's when like the crux, the, the, the impetus for a story really comes to life. And that is plot point number one, is when the character realizes that life is out of balance and they have to do something about it or things will never go back to, to the way they were, which secretly they never will anyway. But from the main character's perspective in act one, they're hoping that if they take this action, that they can get things back to how they were, the original balance. So breaking into act two in Toy Story is when Woody knocks Buzz out of the window. It's a decision that he makes because he wants to be the one to go to Pizza Planet, and it sends them on this whole adventure that they have the rest of the movie, right? It is the action that once Woody does, it cannot be taken back. That's how you know it's plot point number one. He knocks Buzz out the window. All the other toys are upset. Andy comes in, and since he can't find Buzz, he picks Woody. And now Woody's in a predicament because he's like, when we come home, I'm in big trouble. And now the whole balance of everything has been shifted, and that sets our character on a journey. 
And that journey takes place in all of Act 2. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on Act 2. Uh, I, f- I feel like Act 2 is the place where a lot of stories structure things different. And as long as the character is pushing towards their, their main goal and running into obstacles, uh, a lot of people define Act 2 as rising and falling action because what happens is the character makes an attempt and it doesn't work. So then they try something even more crazy, right? Um, one, one thing to remember is a character will always choose the what seems like the easiest path in the beginning. And they're going to choose the easiest thing and it won't work. So they'll try something that's a little bit harder and it won't work. And then they have to do more and more things uh, until they finally find the solution that takes us to the climax. And so Act 2 is mainly just all, all of your scenes where your character is facing obstacles. And that takes us through all of Act 2. So in regards to Toy Story, this would be everything that happens at Pizza Planet. Um, the midpoint, the twist, is when they, when they get um, picked up by Sid and it's like the worst thing that could ever happen because they're like, oh no, not Sid's house. And then they go to Sid's house and there's these scary toys. Um, and then they see him torturing toys. The crisis in Toy Story is, is when Sid gets his rocket in the mail and he's super excited to attach Buzz to the rocket and shoot him into space. And this is the crisis because what he knows if he doesn't come back with Buzz, the other toys will hate him. So if he wants things to return to how they were, his whole goal through all of Act 2 is to get Buzz home. So the moment that Sid duct tapes a rocket to, to Buzz Lightyear's back. We're like, oh no, the, like that, that's the worst thing that could happen. Then fortunately it rains and they've got a little bit of time to figure out a plan. So we end act two with the second plot point, which is the, the your main character does something, they try really, really hard to achieve this thing. And one of two things will happen. You'll have false victory, where it looks like their idea worked out. But then as we get into act three, we see that not at all. What they thought was going to work wasn't. It is a false victory. Or you have false failure like you do in Toy Story where Sid tapes the rocket to Buzz's back and it's looking like everything's going to fall apart. And we're like, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing that could happen. And in the morning, everything is going to fall apart. And so we have this false failure and it's this really low point between uh, Buzz and Woody. And that's when we break into Act 3. We break into Act 3 as the character realizes that they have one more shot to make things right. A lot of times Act 3 will be showing us that that false victory wasn't a victory at all and everything crumbles and, and it all falls apart. And so for Toy Story, this break into Act uh, Act 3 is, is when um, the next morning the sun comes up and Sid takes Buzz out to launch him with the rocket. So then the main character realizes, they, they come to terms with the situation and they realize there's still a way to solve this. I can still do something. A lot of times it involves them realizing that they are going to have to sacrifice, if not themselves, they're going to have to sacrifice everything that once was. Woody realizes that he can't just bring Buzz home. He has to actually make friends with Buzz. And he realizes he can do this and it will be okay. And then he's got this crazy plan where he can use these other toys and help them to rescue Buzz. And it's a lot of fun because we don't know what's going to happen, but we can tell that Woody has a plan. And so they scare Sid. And the whole goal, remember, is for Woody to get Buzz back to Andy's house. But right as they're able to get out of Sid's backyard, the moving truck is leaving. 
And so they're like, oh no, we gotta make it onto the onto the moving truck. And uh, these crazy events happen. And actually, interesting enough, the climax of the movie Toy Story is after they've attempted again to get up into, into the, the moving truck and they don't make it. They're sitting there in the road and Woody remembers that he has the match and Buzz is attached to a rocket and they can use the rocket to get back to Andy. And this is the climax. He strikes that match, a car drives by it, blows it out, and we're like, oh my gosh, it's another false failure. It looks like there's no more hope. And then Buzz's shield on his helmet is casting light onto Andy's or to Woody's hand and he's like, ah, that hurts. Oh my gosh, I can use that like a magnifying glass to light the rocket. So then they light the rocket and they go zooming towards the moving truck. They drop the radio-controlled car into the truck, and he's like, Buzz, we missed the truck. And he's like, we're not aiming for the truck. And they land right in the van with Andy, and boom. The moment they land in the van with Andy, all tension is gone. That is the moment of climax, is when they light that rocket, and they're able to get back to Andy. And they do it in a way that was super unexpected, because we thought they were trying to get back into the moving truck. Instead, they go clear to Andy. And then the other question, the, one of the really interesting things about Toy Story is the ultimate solution to the entire situation is all of the little things that Woody hated about Buzz in the beginning, right? He's a toy that could fly. Toys can't fly, he just has these dumb little wings. He's got that helmet that does that whoosh thing and everybody thinks it's so cool. The helmet is ultimately what lights the rocket. The wings are what enables him to detach from the rocket. And by the way, toys do fly by the end. And so it's this interesting twist on this, on this character of Buzz that he ends up being the solution to getting back to Andy. It's all of these spiffy tools that Buzz Lightyear has that enables them to get back to Andy. So that's just a, a nice little tie-in to character there, um, which ultimately your climax should tie into character and the drama between them. And you have this physical, what I call... I feel like every story has has these two climaxes. You have the physical climax, which is when they overcome the actual obstacle preventing them from getting what they want. And then the re resolution is when we have what I call the emotional climax. And we see this uh, in Toy Story when it's Christmas now and they're opening presents. And instead of freaking out, everybody's freaking out, but Woody is genuinely non-perturbed. He's like, after Buzz, what could happen that would be crazy, right? And then they tie it up at the end with the joke that uh, they got a dog. And again, that's something we didn't expect, but we know that with this cast of characters, having a dog in the mix is going to be very interesting. Bam. That is your three-act structure as laid out by Toy Story. Now, you should have a note card for each of these things. You should have your hook in the beginning. You should have a note card for your inciting incident. You should have a note card for your break into Act 2, which is when your character makes their first big decision that sets them on a new path. You should have between 3 and, you know, 50 note cards. If you're writing a novel, you could have up to 50 note cards of rising and falling action and the, and the things they have to do to try and solve this problem. Um, and then towards the end of Act 2, you're going to have a twist where everything changes. Or uh, in my current novel, I have both a false failure and a false victory there at the end uh, because it makes you think, oh my gosh, they're going to solve it, and then it doesn't work out. 
Um, th those are really nice tools as you break into act three, because what you ultimately want to do is surprise your audience, surprise your reader on how the resolution is going to come about. And then bam, you have the climax of the novel, which is do they overcome the physical obstacle or not? And once they've done that, what are the emotional ramifications of having overcome that? What did they pick up along the way or what did they have to shed along the way? So in terms of what note cards you should have, you should definitely have one for that false victory or false failure. Uh, you should have then a, a card for the climax when they actually face off with the villain or the physical obstacle that's stopping them from getting what they want. And then you definitely need a, a note card for that emotional climax, which is when they determine whether to shed something or they acquire something new that makes them whole again, that brings new balance to the world. So that is the three-act structure, and your note cards are really going to help you lay that out. Once you have done all the note carding, a lot of times at that point you feel like you're ready to break into pages. And this next step, I know there are many writers who skip this next level of outlining. So it may not be for everybody, but I, but I highly recommend it. And that is taking everything you know and putting it into a full treatment. And I have to admit, I have not done a full treatment for every book that I've written. Um, but my current novel that is very complex with lots of characters and a very big world, I felt it was necessary to do a full treatment. And what you do is you simply sit down and you're not writing the book, you're just telling the entire story that you put on note cards. And again, you're doing this with the interest of knowing, does this story work? And a treatment is really awesome because it's something that you can have someone else experience and tell you what they think is working. And the best thing you can do is have someone read your treatment and then allow them to ask questions. You will have so many revelations based on the questions that people ask, things that you don't expect that you're like, oh, I, I thought that was really clear. And a person's like, no, I didn't pick up on that at all. I'm wondering why the character does this, this, and this. And it gives you a chance to fix that again before you're doing the heavy lift. Now, I know a treatment can sound like a heavy lift, but it's a lot easier than writing a book. It's going to be a 10 to 20 page document where you tell your whole story. And the key there is to tell. I know as a writer, you've been told your entire life, show, don't tell. But in a treatment, all you're doing is telling. Don't show anything. It's as if you're just talking it out, right? Another way of doing a treatment would be to take your note cards once you've got it all set up, turn on an audio recorder and literally tell the entire story. And you're not trying to be descriptive. You're not trying to conjure all these images. You're just saying, my character does this. They wake up in the morning and they're surprised to see it's raining outside. They go outside, they put on their raincoat and they're headed to work and bam, a car hits them, right? You're walking through the whole story and you're not being descriptive. You're just telling every little bit. And I thought it might be helpful for me to actually read a little bit of the treatment for my current book, um, which is called Sky Rush. And uh, actually, after writing a whole first draft and feeling like I had a lot of story problems, I backed up. I redid an entire outline for the book. I did a whole treatment for it before jumping into my second draft, which was really a page one rewrite, although using a lot of the elements that I had in the first draft. And the treatment really enabled me to say, okay, what's working and what's not working. I don't want to spend a year writing a book again and feel like I have all these story problems. So I did a basic thing and I wrote a treatment first. Okay, so I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs from this so you can see the type of writing that goes into a treatment. Again, I'm not trying to be pretty. I'm not trying to be flowery. I'm definitely just telling what's happening. 
A great airship floats through an endless span of open sky. It's the Gondry Nation flagship called the Intercolaris, and its commander, the Admiral of the fleet, Malchus Lonan, watches from the quarterdeck. The emptiness is daunting and yet surreal. There is no sign of land or water to the north, south, east, or west, neither above nor below. There is only a great impenetrable emptiness, miles and miles of atmosphere in all directions. This is the great azure plain, a world where land masses float like islands in the sky and the atmosphere stretches out like an ocean. Lonan and his crew have traveled for months across the ether in search of a hidden landmass, a mantle of earth over which they can assert their claim, expand the Gondry nation. They sight their quarry, and extra sails are set to speed their course. It's in this moment that Lonan comes to a decision on the choice he's been weighing for weeks. He goes to the infirmary to find the surgeon, Dr. Godwin Hayes, one of Lonan's closest advisors, and one of the few he considers a friend. Magura, his other trusted advisor, and the only woman on board the ship, meets them there. She is a Lakuanan uh, sorceress, a witch doctor. The left half of her, the left, Magura, his other trusted advisor and the only woman on board the ship meets them there. She is a Lakuanan uh, sorceress, a witch doctor. The left half of her body is covered in black tattoos while the right half of her body has been tattooed in white. She has a tribal look to her hair and dress. Lonan tells Magura that he's made up his mind to go through with it. Magura says she can guide but doesn't trust her hand, having been away from the aura of the earth for so long. The task is left to Godwin who tries to get out of it but Lonan insists. Reading that's interesting because a lot of that has, has since changed, but that gives you the idea of the pacing, right? You're not going to spend forever describing things, but you may give some brief uh, description of what a character looks like, and you're making sure to hit all the critical points of the story. You're explaining motive, you're explaining what's happening and why, uh, why the characters want what they want and what they're going to do about it. And again, it all just comes back to, in your treatment, tell, don't show. As I said at the beginning of this, there are plenty of authors and writers who don't outline at all. I'm not that smart. Outlining is just a powerful tool to make sure that I am structuring my story long before I get on the page so that when I'm on the page, I'm worried about conveying the look, the feel, and the motion, and the movement of the story rather than worrying about major plot points and whether or not they're working. It also helps me a lot with pacing. It also helps you get the story moving along quicker because if you know that interesting things are coming along, there's this term that, that comes from the film industry that I think every writer should, should take hold of and that is cut to the chase. If you are getting stuck and you're like, ah, oh, I don't know what to do next, cut to the chase. Jump right to the next interesting thing that you have planned, because a lot of times we think we need a build up to them and we don't. We can cut straight to them. And again, having note carded and having done your treatment, you're going to find the areas where you are dragging things out. And you're going to find the, the areas where you're jumping through hoops too quickly for the reader to stay with you. Fixing things like pacing and structure, it's really, really hard on the page when you're actually writing, my current book has 153,000 words and it's like close to 500 pages of a word document. When you are dealing with that kind of a behemoth, it is really hard to adjust structure. So you wanna take it in bite-sized chunks in an outline, in a blueprint of some sort that can help you articulate things and shift things around without dealing with this behemoth of a document to do so. I think outlining is key, and I recommend it for every writer out there. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode, uh, on the short series I'm doing on how to write a book, at least how I believe uh, you can write a book. 
We talked all about outlining today, and uh, the next episode that you can tune in for will actually be talking about querying. Now, I know that may come as a surprise to some of you because you're like, shouldn't I wait till my book is done to start querying? No, you shouldn't. There is such value in preparing your query before you've done the work of writing the book, and I'm going to explain to you why. You're going to start working on your query, not necessarily one that you're going to send, but once you start querying, you're going to realize mistakes, you're going to realize holes in your story, and it's really going to help you get a handle on where your story is at. <laughs>